Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is Emily Jane Fox. I'm here solo this week. Joe is on deadline and I am bringing you a very exciting interview. It's my first interview back post baby and what a way to start then with Nell Diamond who is the CEO founder of Hill House Home. It is a linen brand but I think that they're best known for a little item known as the nap dress. I'm sure some of you are familiar and some of you are unfamiliar, but it is sort of what what it sounds like. It is a dress that became incredibly popular on Instagram. If you have or are or know a woman between the ages of 18 and 40, I would say it is sort of a ubiquitous item. And It is very cute. It is incredibly comfortable. And beyond that, I think it's a very interesting case study of a brand and a product. Uh, Nell is incredibly sharp and savvy, and she has met the moment of how customers shop and met them exactly where they are. Uh, It is a model of direct-to-consumer commerce. And to me, what is fascinating is I really feel like it's the first time in my recent memory that I remember a community being formed around a commodity. And Nell and I talk all about what it's like to build a direct-to-consumer brand that really speaks to an audience and lets the audience speak to them too. It's a, a very interesting feedback loop, an incredibly interesting business model, and an incredibly interesting founder and executive at the helm of it. And, And we get into the supply chain issues. We get into how a CEO is supposed to respond to cultural things that are happening, uh, how a, an executive team can really use the audience that they have created to inform decisions about what goes into production. So it's a really fascinating look at a brand that I think has done something obviously very right. And if the product is new to you, some of the concepts that we talked about shouldn't be. And I, I just think it's a very fresh look at, at things that we talk about a lot on this podcast and things that we will talk about going forward. So I'm really excited for you to jump in. Joe will be back with me next week, but but for now, enjoy this conversation and maybe get yourself a nap dress. We will see you on the other side.
There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. I am here with Nell Diamond. I'm so excited to have you, Nell, because you are sort of an icon to a certain generation of millennial, Gen Z, city-dwelling or adjacent women who are very online. And you kind of started a cozy, cute revolution. Oh my gosh, that is incredibly kind. The part of that that I identify the most with is very online. I am certainly very online. Well, being very (laughs) online has completely transformed your business. And I I think for those people who aren't in the demo, who maybe aren't as online or married to someone who's, who's been wearing a nap dress for the last two years, can you just describe what a nap dress is, what Hill House Home is, and how did you come to create both your brand and this item that has started a revolution? Oh my gosh, yes. Okay, so so first I'll start with Hill House. So I founded Hill House in 2016. It's now 2021. Um, right out of business school, right out of college, I went and worked in finance as an analyst. Um, I loved the experience, did not love the subject matter. So went to business school with kind of the idea for Hill House Home. And then right after graduation, launched the business, um, which was a wild, crazy ride. Two weeks after I launched the business, I found out I was pregnant with my first child, Henry, um, you know, happily married, and we'd like discuss children at some point, but but it was definitely a surprise. Um, and that same day, my first employee quit, <laughs> so had a, a fun couple months, um, like running all the things business. at once. Yeah, running this business, like dealing with hyperemesis and pregnancy, and like all of those crazy things, and. I like joke that, so I was 27 years old and in New York, I feel like that's being like a teen mom. Like my friends were literally at the club. Like I, when I told them I was pregnant, like they were at a club. So it was like, you, you were basically the youngest yeah. person ever to give birth who I know. <laughs> I know. Meanwhile, it's like such a New York thing that that that's, um, but it's, it's pretty funny. So, so I started Hill House in 2016 um, and then kind of Fast forward to things, things in my life always happen around babies. It's pretty funny. But fast forward to 2020, um, you know, a week before New York City shut down, I found out I was pregnant with twins. Um, Mm. So I was already like totally blown away by this craziness of seeing, you know, two little babies on an ultrasound and like had been hearing from friends like, oh, like, I think you should probably wear gloves outside and like, you know, wash your hands a lot. You know, they're like, sing the happy birthday song when you wash your hands. And then all of a sudden New York shut down and I had, you know, this business that I had been growing for at that point, like four and a half years and, you know, these two babies um, and then, you know, baby on the outside too, my, my son, who's now five Henry. Um, and it was a really, you know, wild, crazy, humbling experience um, to kind of carry the business, carry the, the twins um, and my family through that period. Um, we were like tremendously lucky in so many ways. And, but the funny part is that, you know, in that period, I think that, the business itself, Hill House, you know, really grew in a way that felt um, 
incredibly exciting and humbling at the same time. Um, I remember there was this moment when I was sitting in my window desk, as I affectionately call it, because I worked from home <laughs> for like 18 months, I was sitting in my window desk. And I had always like pictured the moment when I would first see somebody wearing one of our products in real life. And I was on a conference call and I saw somebody on the street outside my bedroom window wearing a nap dress. Did you lose your mind? Screamed like through my computer. Like I was like probably on the phone with like a bank. They're like, babe, like we just need your pin number. Like we don't need you to like have a heart attack here. Um, so that was just this like incredible moment. And it was so funny because so many of those moments happened while I was inside. Um, so the nap dress, I can give you kind of the background on the nap dress. Basically, Please. it's a misnomer. So everyone, when we first came out with the nap dress, we had, you know, people would be like, well, who's napping? Like who gets all this time to nap? And I'm like, certainly not me. And certainly not any of our customers. They are not napping. Uh, but it was really meant to indicate the kind of comfort level of the dress. Mm. And it's basically a dress that you can dress up, dress down. It's my version of jeans. It's incredibly comfortable. It's fit me in the same size at like many iterations of my body, including, you know, 37 weeks pregnant with twins. And I wasn't exactly carrying small. Uh, one of my twins was seven pounds, which is just like wow. hilarious. And it's this really kind of foundational garment in a lot of women's wardrobes now that, that can carry you from, you know, 6am breakfast for lots of other people in your home all the way up to, you know, being social and having meetings and running to the grocery store and running errands. Um, so it's, it's been this really fun product to create and we created it really with kind of like a wish and a hope. Like I remember wanting this garment in my own life, wanting a piece of clothing that made me feel like me, um, made me feel presentable and, um, you know, like I was put together and kind of ready for the day, even when the day was just like a nightmare. <laughs> and that's what, that's what we created. Um, and it was, you know, incredibly exciting to kind of see people respond to the product in the way they did over the last two years. Well, I want to talk about how they did respond to the product and, and the crazy around that. But before I do that, you said you said something that I actually never really thought about. But you were talking about how you you started after college mm -hmm. uh, in a more traditional banking environment that I would presume was predominantly male, mm -hmm. and you took a leap to create first first a, a betting line, and then and then the nafjes is part of that and came to follow, which is I would say predominantly female. And it just makes me think it's always a huge leap to start a business, but I don't think the people who you were working with are the kinds of people who would take a nap dress seriously. And so mm -hmm. I think that the, the risk is even greater. Um, how did you wrap your brain around taking that kind of risk, particularly in something that maybe the, the people you were working with wouldn't take as seriously. Now I'm sure they would, they would eat their words, but uh, that's, that's a hard thing for a young person or, or an old person to do. Yeah. I mean, look, this is, uh, this is like one of the great kind of struggles I've had my whole life. I think, you know, I, if you, if for people who know me or have seen me in person, I present in a very like archetypally feminine way. I like mm -hmm. traditionally feminine things like bows and makeup and lipstick and high heels and ruffly dresses, which is what we make. And I've always been that way. My mom and dad joke that I like came out of the womb that way. I, um, <laughs> you know, like begged, begged, begged to like wear little play dress up heels and dresses and um, makeup like at a very young age. And both my mom and my dad were so incredibly supportive in this in such an affirming way. I think there's a tendency with 
everything female in the world, right? To say that, oh, that's not serious. And we want to raise like a smart, educated, empowered daughter. She shouldn't care about, you know, bows and frilly things. My parents kind of did the opposite. They really saw it as an expression of my creativity and and Mm -hmm. me figuring out like who I am as a person at such a young age. I think they saw that I like really was trying to figure that out and wanted to make a point of it. And so they let me do it. And my mom and dad like protected me fiercely with that. Um, But I think at the same time, you know, your parents can't protect you from everything. And I definitely like feel like there was so much friction throughout like my whole um, high school and college and then early career moments with like who I outwardly presented as and the like, you know, nuanced person I am, which is true about everyone, right? Like I'm so much more than, than how you might like initially perceive me. And that was really difficult for me. I think I, I felt like I had something to prove, right? And I think that's a huge reason why I went into finance. I, I wanted people who might look at me and say like, oh, she's a silly little girl to say like, oh, actually she can do this. She can do this, you know, intense quantitative, like mathematical stuff. Um, she can talk about things that are deemed serious by society. And it was a huge moment for me when I realized that I was still really operating under this guise of like, you know, patriarchal thinking that, that quantitative things were for men and other things weren't. Um, so I think that when I was able to really pursue my serious side or my um, more academic side um, in a field that I truly love, which is, you know, fashion and home and consumer products. Um, it's been like one of the most empowering discoveries of my life that I can combine all those things because I'm, I'm you know, as I said, a nuanced person. Um, and it's been, you know, a really wonderful kind of early 30s, late 20s discovery that I can do all those things at once. Well, you know, I think as you discovered that and then built a product around yeah, all the nuances and all the multitudes you contain, I think that that's part of the reason why the nap dress has caught on. I mean, I have worn my nap dresses on television to talk about matters of national importance, right? I, I, I have worn them when I was pregnant. I've worn them when I'm feeding my child and I have worn them in very serious professional settings. Uh, I've worn them with my family. I've worn them on dates. And, and I think that the customer contains multitudes and they can want to look like the girliest, frilliest, most comfortable version of themselves and also do serious things at the same time. And so I think you've made a product that speaks to this moment of women accepting I can be a woman and I can also do all the things. And that, yeah. that is part of the reason why I think it has caught on. Well, I think like there's this really key point to me that, you know, um, gender equality is not the absence of gender, right? It's not like removing mm-hmm. anything that's archetypally feminine. It's, you know, everybody performs a different version of, you know, their own gender. And I believe everybody should have the freedom to do that. And we all get to kind of figure out what that like perfect equilibrium is for each of us, the same way we figure out like, whether we like toast or, you know, bagels, like it's like a a kind of wonderful discovery of your own taste. Um, And I think that that's, that's been so crucial to me. And I feel like it's, it's really incredible to see all the women, as you mentioned, like doing women and men and, and people of all genders doing, you know, different things in our products. I think it's like, it's not the person it's not the nap dress, right. That defines you. It's what you're doing in it. It's like the person themselves. And I think that's, that's been so cool for us to see, as you mentioned, like, you know, we had, you know, doctors and nurses during the pandemic, like wearing their nap dress to like go do something like very important and essential the same way Mm. that, 
you know, we had mothers nursing new babies, which is also something incredibly important and essential. Um, so I think it's been like a really, you know, my friends like make fun of me that I make this all so dramatic, but like, it's been, you know, the most humbling experience of my life to like watch that happen. Well, what a cool thing to see people coming into their own in a product that you, that you've made. And I think for the first time in, in my recent memory, it really feels like you've created a community around a commodity and that's a very hard thing to do. It stands for such something so much more than just a dress than an item of clothing. And I think that that speaks to a number of things that were happening at the same time. And I sort of want to break all of them down. We had a global pandemic in which people were intensely focused on being comfortable and inside, right? And the nap dress is probably the most comfortable and cute item I, I own at the same time. And I would just imagine in that moment when people are A, intensely interested in being comfortable and cozy, B, extremely at home, and C, extremely online where you guys are direct-to-consumer and direct-to-consumer as people were were more interested in being comfortable at home, direct-to-consumer was exploding because no one was going into stores. So it was sort of this, this perfect storm that led to your explosion. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think the the comfort thing is really interesting because I think something that's fundamental to the way we think about all of our products, you know, outside of the nap dress, we also make bedding, bath products, baby products, accessories, all sorts of things, is this, you know, kind of combination between beauty and practicality. And I think this really comes from this idea that like the rules are real. Like you don't, just because something like looks great doesn't mean it has to be uncomfortable. You can sure. have something that like is practical for your life. And in, in the case of an app dress, that means not only that it's machine washable, but also that it like quite literally expands with you throughout the day. I had this like real vision of sitting at my desk and having like a desk lunch and then having to like unzip my dress. I'm like nobody has time for that. Like I don't need to do that just because I want to have a dress that makes me feel great. And kind of us all sitting around our in our office and thinking like, why do we have to choose? Like, can't we make something that fulfills both of those? at the same time. Um, and like, I always joke that it's like that line from clueless where Cher talks about like her party clothes being too restricting. And that's why she was like, (laughs) that's why she was like in a bad mood or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, that happened to me all the time. Like my party clothes were too restricting. So, um, you can still have your like aesthetic, but, but be comfortable at the same time. And that was very, who among us has not unbuttoned their pants uh, (laughs) after, after lunch or on their way home or, desperately tried to unzip something um, as, the, as they're driving away from something that they need to look presentable in. Yeah. Uh, what is interesting to me, and I see you do this because I follow you on Instagram and I see how you're interacting with your community. And uh, I think that, that you have, have built such a loyal group of, um, of, of devotees who are obsessed with your product, who feel like they know you and are connected to you. But I think that that must be a very valuable thing to have such engaged, devoted people. And I see you giving sneak peeks of things to come and making people feel incredibly included in the process of designing this. And I'm wondering if that's a conscious thing and and also how you use the feedback and the attention from the people who are your true customers in deciding what comes next, what patterns you want to go for, what shapes you are, you know, pe- people are, are 
just dying to have more of or how they're styling that? Is that, are people putting on cardigans? So you're deciding to make more cardigans. Talk to me about how you're using this community that you've um, so brilliantly created. Yeah. I mean, well, so I think that if the, you know, I wish I could say like, this is all part of some grandmaster case study that I like learned in a class or whatever. <laughs> it, it really, none of it has been. I think that the, the like sad or, or maybe just like, you know, cold reality of it all is that like the past kind of six or seven years in my own personal life have had some really lonely moments, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, that new motherhood is incredibly isolating. Starting a business is incredibly isolating. Um, you know, there were several years where I spent, you know, significant numbers of nights in the hospital with my mom dealing with breast cancer and was truly, you know, really isolated from, I felt like the world. And I was so grateful to have Instagram as an outlet in, in those times and to have people to connect with, um, you know, especially this past kind of 18, 24 months. Um, and I think as it relates to the business, you know, I started this business, as I mentioned, you know, my first employee quit, I was alone for the first six months. I didn't have a single other person in, in you know, working with me in my little co-working space and mm. I needed help. <laughs> so yes. I really felt like I used Instagram as this tool to like ask people what they wanted. I'm like, you know, if I'm doing this, like I, why would I ever create product that people like genuinely don't want? Right. Like I mm. kind of don't have this sense of myself as like somebody who like knows everything. Right. And I think that I really, wanted to know what people wanted, um, as basic as that sounds. So I think as that has grown, uh, you know, it's, it's become such a powerful tool, but I think that one that, you know, every company should be employing, like the ability to have this direct relationship with the people who can or might buy your products is the most valuable tool you could ever have. Because at the end of the day, like, I don't want to buy too much inventory. I don't want to buy inventory that's going to go to waste or go on sale or like end up in a landfill. And I don't want to buy things that don't make people's lives better. So it's like, just feels so wasteful to like be creating all this like extra stuff that people don't want. And I think also like we had, you know, it was very important to build a profitable business from the get go. And obviously that, that sounds like a given, but when I started the business in 2016, many direct consumer companies like didn't even have a path to profitability. That wasn't even something they were thinking about. But for me, it's like, okay, every week we got to pay, you know, this bill every month, we got to pay that bill. Like, let's figure out how we can get, keep the company's like lifeblood alive. And, you know, you go back to basics, right? What do people want? What are they actually going to shell out like hard earned dollars for and is going to genuinely make their life like that much better? So I think it came about very organically. Like I never could have planned to have this like, you know, thoughtful interaction with customers that we have. Um, and, and it is exactly what you mentioned. You know, we have customers, customers DM me and they're like, just as an example, you know, we make nap dresses in the, in the winter out of like a flannel tartan fabric. And mm-hmm. that, you know, came about because people were DMing me being like, oh my gosh, my like cotton poplin nap dresses are the best, but I'm so cold in the winter and I want to do X, Y, Z. And then, you know, we make these turtleneck bodysuits that are like layering for underneath your nap dresses. And again, that came from people being like, okay, I'm really looking for a layering piece that, you know, doesn't make me like crazy hot when I go into a a space with heating Mm -hmm. and all these different things. And it's like, I mean, how could you not take advantage of that? It's, it's, it's the best, um, it's the best information we could ever get. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. 
I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. <laughs> but whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. I mean, that, that feels like the, the dream uh, CEO scenario and, and one in which uh, I think both is it's hard to do when you are not starting a business the way you started a business and when you're also not uh, familiar with a medium that could give you so much information. I think in, in, in so many ways, I think sometimes youth is such a hard thing when it comes to business. And then in, in this particular instance, it is such an asset to you that you understand how to communicate directly with the people who are buying your product. I, you, you mentioned ab- about direct-to-consumer brands um, not being profitable, and I, that has been such a narrative over the last 10 years. I'm wondering what you feel like you got right that other companies did not get right, and, and you did it so quickly. Well, so well, so what I would say is, is on that, I think one of the best pieces of advice that you know, both my parents gave me when I was very young, but then when, when I was going in to start this business was to like always keep my blinders on, like look mm. in front of me and not to the side of me and not look at what other businesses are doing. And that has been like my saving grace because the comparison game is just devastating. <laughs> you will always find somebody doing something better than you are in a million different ways. And that comparison will really rob you of like, you know, forward motion. And I find that true in personal life. <laughs> and I, I, I life. literally say twice a day, compare and despair, I, I, like at least twice a day. It's, it's probably the thing I say the most and repeat the most and, and truly fundamentally believe. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, you don't look at your neighbor's homework, like they're living a different life than you. And I think that that was like, so it was such freedom for me in the early days. You know, I know it's cheesy, but like, to be really honest, I, I truly try not to look at like, pay too much attention to what like our competitors or our peers are doing, because I just don't think it's productive for me personally. Maybe Mm -hmm. some other business owners like really thrive that way, but I have to really like put my head down and focus on, um, you know, what we're doing. And it wasn't even a question for me that we needed to be profitable at the beginning. It's like, I, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if I just had this pie in the sky vision of like one day we'll be able to do X, Y, Z. Like I needed to know we could pay our rent bill at the end of the month and pay our warehouse bill and all of those things. And so that was the only way I personally could run the business. And I think that's really freeing, right? If you are founding your own business, if you are in whatever seat you're in, in your job, like you got to figure out how you can do that job, not how somebody else can. Sure. I think that, um, that is a, a, an intensely mature way to run a business and it must be a very difficult thing to do, but it, it is working for you. And I read an interview you did with the New Yorker in 2020, which is a very cool thing to have done a, a, an interview with, uh, with the New Yorker period. And in the article, you said um, that the business had grown sevenfold in the, six, the first six months of 2020. I'm wondering what that's like now, a year later. Yeah. So, I mean, the first months of 2020 were, 
um, obviously wild um, for a million reasons. I think from a business perspective, um, you know, in March and April, we we literally looked at our books, we looked at our P&L, we looked at our budget, and we calculated like how many weeks we had left until we'd run out of money, you know, assuming zero sales. Because at that point, we were thinking like, all right, our warehouse won't be able to safely ship out packages, our factories are going to shut down all over the world, like, we're kind of done. And we like made those disaster planning moves. Um, and, and somehow we were able to kind of grow. And I think that it was a credit to a few things. I think it was a credit to, um, a, you know, this business had been around for four or five years at that point. Right. Like we, this wasn't an overnight business. I had like spent, you know, years and years setting up a supply chain and a warehouse and like, you know, partners who like felt like real partners. And as it relates to kind of like our product, you know, that meant that we could be really thoughtful when we talk to our factory owners and say like, okay, how can we get um, X product to Y port in, you know, five days and figure it out. So we were able to be really flexible, um, not just because of like our deep relationships along the supply chain, but then also because of our business model. You know, I had, you know, friends who have brands who sell a lot to wholesale. We don't sell to wholesale at all. You know, wholesale canceled a lot of orders. We kind of controlled our own destiny. And so we Mm. were able to say like, look, we have this product. I remember we had like this, it was our first, we call it nap dress summer. It was our first nap dress summer. We had this shipment that we had paid for in full of like our biggest order by like 10 X ever. And we placed it pre-pandemic um, and it was coming in June. And I just remember us like sitting on Zoom. I was like throwing up because I was so sick with the twins and our, oh. CO- our COO was also pregnant. <laughs> and we were just sort oh of like, gosh. this is fun. We, um, we both had like kids um, like sitting on our laps who were home from school. We we're like, all right, I guess, I guess, you know, we just got to get it here and see if anyone wants it. But we were not like, you know, it was funny because like later in the year, I remember seeing tweets and stuff being like, the nap dress, like people are really trying to take advantage of the pandemic. Like they're trying to re-merchandise a product to like something, something like to make it seem like you can wear it at home. Mm-hmm. And I was like, if only, like, that's not at all. We've been creating this product since 2019 and we were petrified. We were like, there's no way we're going to be able to sell this. Um, and I think that, that the strength of the actual product, right. So like everything against what, you know, you might be taught in like marketing classes, like the actual yes. product was what sold itself, right? We had people, we called it the group chat effect. Like we were spending like less than 1% of our budget on marketing. We spent almost nothing on marketing for that entire year. And it was because people were texting each other in their group chats, sharing it on Instagram and saying, okay, I put this on for Zoom this morning. I had woken up two minutes before and I felt great. And I like looked professional and I loved it. And that's it, right? And so I think that that taught me like the most important lesson Um, that I'm trying to take into consideration now as we build more products that like nothing matters if your product isn't good, nothing. Like Mm -hmm. if your product isn't good, you can have the most genius marketing minds, all the budget in the world. And like customers will know, they just don't want it. If they don't want the product, then you're done. Well, you've built such a strong uh, foundation for your business and such a rabid customer base on word of mouth. I, I remember the first time I wore a nap dress, it was actually the day after I got engaged and we had some friends over and I wore a nap dress and I felt like the best version of myself. And we only had, um, it was right at the beginning of the pandemic. And so we were, it was like maybe the first time we really even saw our friends out in our backyard. And I think there were three girls here and they were like, 
what is that dress? Oh my Where gosh. do I get one? <laughs> and it, truly, like I think, I think all of them ended up ordering the same exact nap dress. And it was I, I saw and witnessed the the word of mouth effect in that. I, I want to talk to you about um, some of the things that you just brought up, but I have to to stop you as you spoke about your supply chain and how hard you worked in it. And I, I have to think um, supply chain is such an issue for every business owner right now. I feel like I get three emails a day from from various e-com platforms being like, if you want something in time for Christmas, order it now because yeah. it may be sold out or it may take forever to get, get there. So are you guys feeling any pressure of the supply chain madness that's happening right now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been we've been definitely feeling it for you know over a year now. I think it's it's just a totally um, you know changed world, and and you feel it in different ways, right? There are so many ways people say supply chain, but like that includes everything from like the last mile delivery from our warehouse in New Jersey to somebody's doorstep on like Seventy Second Street, and it includes yes. like a you know deliveries over the ocean. So I think that you know it, it's so funny how motherhood and, and entrepreneurship like overlap so much for me, but all of this has just been like the key word is just patience right in the face Mm -hmm. of like things you can't control like you there is no part of me that can control the port traffic Mm -hmm. of a boat coming in from our factory and trying to get through customs in a pandemic there's no part of me that can control that what we can control and i think this is what our team really tries to focus on is how we tell customers like how transparent we are about it how um easy we make it to you know return an item if it came or cancel an order if like the date is now just not going to work for them, how we communicate pre-orders, you know, all of those things that we can control, we try and focus on those. And I think that's been, you know, like taking back those like small moments that, that are within our power has been a, like the only thing we can do and be allowed our customers, I think, to have like a little bit more of a like open and honest relationship with us and our customer service team. But I mean, certainly patience gets tested. I mean, you, you, there's just sometimes nothing you can do. Um, we, we had a, a shipment that, um, of nap dresses that was on the ocean for literally four months. We were shipping it by oh sea God. for four months. And in that time we were able to like produce an entire new, um, order of like the same product, um, oh and ship it on a different boat and get it here because some boats were just slower than other boats. And, you know, we made the best of it. Like our, our, um, team internally was calling it like the bad luck boat. <laughs> and then we found out that some of our customers, like, you know, I think to a fault, sometimes we're like very open. So we've been calling it bad luck boat, like to customers who had a pre-order on that boat. And then this last launch, somebody was like, Oh, I really hope we don't get another bad luck boat. And I'm like, gosh, I'm, we really have no filter. Like what's wrong with us? Um, but it, no, you know, I think, I think the, the, the fact that you are so open and transparent works in your favor. It makes me think of, I read this survey that Google commissioned. Um, it was about all direct to consumer shopping. And it basically said that two thirds of shoppers go out of their way to buy directly from a brand. And I think a huge part of that is transparency like this, that right. they feel connected to the brand. And it makes so much sense. If you have a a story that's a bad luck boat rather than you continually refresh a page and it says like delay 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 with no story of course i'm going to go directly to the brand who's communicating what's happening right well i think the 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 other thing with like all the supply chain kind of drama that that's been really interesting over the past year is you know we pre-pandemic like 
everything is so automated, right? Like you place an order on caviar or seamless and you like get the delivery right away. And you're like, there's like no human contact and we're like removing humanity from everything. And I actually think like, it's been so, um, we've really been trying to like remind our customer base of like how many human interactions happen in our supply chain, right? Like our dresses are sewn by hand and, if, you know, there's a COVID outbreak in a factory, like it's the same thing that happens at a New York city school. Like they go into lockdown and then they come back when everyone's out of quarantine or, you know, just as like a really specific example. But, um, you know, we, we got a shipment to the United States, like on time from one of our factories over the summer. And then it was sitting on a tarmac at JFK for two weeks because there was not enough, um, staff to unpack it. So it's literally sitting on the tarmac. And I remember just being like, okay, there are just so many human, touches that go into every product that's made across the supply chain. And like, if you are able to have grace and humanity for like, you know, your fellow neighbor and like, you know, somebody like who's taking too long on the sidewalk walking in front of you, like that, that's the kind of compassion that needs to exist when you like buy products too. I think that, you know, just being reminded of the humanity and everything like kind of makes it easier to understand what's going on. Well, speaking of, of humanity and being reminded of, of good things, this, the same survey that I just mentioned, um, says that basically two thirds of customers are interested in supporting direct to consumer brands because they feel like it's easier to identify what a brand stands for. And it makes me think so much, um, that businesses now companies are expected to be forces of good, or at least speak up on issues that are happening that are beyond what they're selling to customers. And I think that that is particularly true for female founded businesses. Is this something that you feel an internal or external pull towards? I, I think about this a lot um, because I, there's sort of this vicious cycle around female founders where um, it's very hard to raise money as a woman. It's exceptionally hard to raise money as a woman. And oftentimes in order to, for women to do that, they feel like they needed to, to found a mission-driven company, and then they're held to impossibly high standards because not only are they running a company, but they're standing for a mission. And I'm, I'm sure this is something that you must think about, uh, and I'm wondering how you work your way through it or what, what your internal and external pressures are around it. Yeah, well, I think that the increased accountability for companies from customers that has come out of like the social media age is incredible. I think we're going to yeah. see in the next 10 to 20 years that companies literally like are forced to behave better because the accountability is there. You know, people are mm-hmm. directly asking on social media platforms like companies can't hide in the way that I think that um, they probably could for many years. So I'm a big fan of like accountability um, as as we kind of grow the company. And, and I, I think that if you are founding a company and if you are, um, you know, selling products to people, you have a certain amount of duty um, to like respect the communities you operate in, respect the teams of people that support your growth and, you know, the environment that like fuels everything you do. So I think that we think about, um, you know, our kind of responsibility to the world as, you know, social, like the social impact. Um, what is the impact of our business and our actions on the world around us? Um, mm. and, and we, we hope that our community will kind of continue to hold us accountable for that as we grow the business. I think that that is the perfect way to think about this as, as sort of an opportunity. Um, and what a what a nice way to to view your business. 
my last question for you before I let you go back to, to running the empire is where do you take Nath Dress Nation next? I know you are expanding in the products that you offer. Uh, you just had a recent, uh, what you call drop, but for folks who are not uh, quite as online, it's an, a, a release of items at a specific time that people can, can find online and, and they hotly await the items coming online. Their countdown clock is a very exciting thing. So where do you see this going? I know you're opening another brick and mortar store in New York City. Are there plans to expand into other retailers? Where Where is this all headed? So we are so excited to get back in person. So as you mentioned, we're opening a pop-up store in New York City on November 4th. It's at 112 Mercer Street. So um, like in the Soho area, right by our office. Um, and I hope this is just the first of, of many kind of retail experiences. I think it's one of like the greatest parts of the first few years of our business was our ability to have a brick and mortar store. We had a little store on Bleecker Street and I was there every day. That's where I worked out of. It was like, that's the heart of what we do. Um, mm. So my first jobs were were all retail jobs. I worked at the, I grew up in London and I worked at the Abercrombie and Fitch on Savile Row in London, the oh. first Abercrombie in the UK. Were you the coolest girl in school to work at Abercrombie? I certainly thought so. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, like honestly, I was like, all right, pack it up. My life's good. I've like made it. <laughs> it was literally, I mean, this was the height of Abercrombie. I thought it was, you know, the most iconic thing. And except for Topshop, which was my true icon at that point, but I did not get that job in case you were wondering. The Abercrombie <laughs> retail job was gold standard, except for the fact that you probably smelled like, like that cologne that I will never be able to get out of my nose. I just oh, yeah. has lingered there forever, but yes, very, very cool. Yeah. I smelled like that cologne. And I also had about seven tank tops layered on top of each other and thought I was sure. like iconic. <laughs> Um, but so I feel like, you know, in person is like what I grew up with. And it's, it's, I think like such an incredible, incredible part of this business. Um, and I also always say like, you know, I would have started this business before the internet, right? Like, and that's because it's about the product. Mm -hmm. It's because I really like believe in the actual thing we're selling. It's really nice that we have the internet to do it. And it's nice that we have the direct to consumer business model to do it, but getting in person, like actually like talking to the people that are buying clothes in person, trying them on, helping them style, like that's what I can't wait to get back to. So we'll do that with New York. I'm really hoping to open some more permanent stores in kind of the coming years. And then, you know, I think one of the coolest things about the nap dress really taking off is that we feel like, you know, we've been given permission to like bring that into other categories. So we're excited to continue to expand our home categories, but then also, um, you know, new, new categories in kind of the fashion and lifestyle space. So, um, our team, our team has grown over the past year and, and it's, it's just a really exciting time to think about what else we can do in this kind of realm of like combining beauty and practicality at the same time um, and allowing people to kind of figure out their sense of style, their taste, and, you know, really like live to be the best version of themselves. Mm. Well, we are so excited to see where you go next. And I'm just so grateful for you stopping by and spending the time to introduce more people to what you're doing. And we just can't wait to see where it goes from here. Thank you so much. This has been so fun. Such a pleasure. Thank you to my guest, Nell Diamond, and of course, as always, my co-host, Joe Hagen. If you can enjoy this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a really nice review while you're there. Thanks to our great producer, Brett Fuchs. 
And thanks, of course, to my sponsors. Please support them any way you would support this podcast. We'll see you right here next week. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.